Welcome back to The Boy from Splendora, Texas by Wallace Gibbs. The Approaching Storm, 1980, Episode 9. Wallace, Mama said as she stood in the doorway to our room, time to go let the chickens out. I had no need of an alarm clock back in my teenage years. Mom and Daddy got up every morning around 5 o'clock and would sit drinking coffee, reading the newspaper, and visiting until it was time for us to get up. Now that Virgil and I were in our new room out in the garage, Mama could not holler from the table to wake us up. She had to walk through the utility room and into the laundry area to come wake us up. Wallace, Mama said again, are you up? Yes, ma'am, I groggily said. Go let the chickens out, Mama said. I looked at the ball clock, and it was 7.24. Virgil, Mama loudly said, wake up. Y'all have a busy day ahead of you. I put my feet on the carpeted bedroom floor, the only carpet in the entire house. Virgil, I gruffly said, it's time to get up. Virgil didn't move. Virgil. I said more urgently. Mama said to get up. Virgil still didn't move, so I got up, went to his bed, and started shaking him. Get up, I said. Mama told us to get up. Today was July 26th, the last Saturday in the month, and we had only five more days until Charlotte's 17th birthday. She would be the first kid that would experience a birthday without the reliability of Aunt Doris coming over with a cake made especially for her. I left the room and headed to the bathroom where I quickly dispatched what I needed to do there and then headed to the kitchen where Mama and Daddy were sitting. Each of them had a separate section of the Houston Chronicle. What's for breakfast? I asked. I'm going to make pancakes and sausage, Mama said. Y'all are going to need a hearty breakfast to get you started today. What are we doing? I asked. We're going to start laying the forms for the new driveway, Daddy interjected. It's going to take most of the day, and I'm really not sure that we will finish it. If you were approaching our house from the west on FM 2090, you would see three driveways. The first driveway was a concrete driveway that Daddy poured when he built the new house in 1966. Walking up the concrete driveway, the first thing that you would notice is that the first half of the driveway had small waves in the concrete that raised up about a fourth of an inch. I was always told that this was because Mama went into labor with me and Daddy dropped everything that he was doing in order to get Mama to the hospital, which was in Houston, an hour away from the house. As you can imagine, concrete that hasn't been smoothed and finished can be a little uneven and lumpy. Any time that I would walk from the house to get the Houston Chronicle, where every morning it was thrown by Mr. Scarborough at the end of our driveway, I would walk on the grass to avoid this section of the driveway because it was uncomfortable to my bare feet. The second driveway was all dirt. It led past the house and right up to the old garage. It was the original driveway on the property and led to the wood-framed 
house that Mama and Daddy purchased in 1959 and moved into. Uncle Pat and Aunt Alice purchased the original house in the early 1970s and moved it up the street next to Granny's place. Typically, Gina and Gail used this driveway to park their cars. Mama and Daddy used the concrete driveway. The third driveway was also a dirt driveway and was the newest driveway. It was installed back in 1978 when Daddy had the barn and the swimming pool built. During the summer and early fall, you would come in on one driveway and exit on any of the others, which would allow you to enter FM 2090 without having to back out of the property. However, this was not possible in the winter and the spring because the ground was too wet and the car would get stuck. Earlier in the year, Daddy decided that he was going to make the third driveway concrete and join it to the first driveway so that it formed a very large U-shape. In addition to that, he was going to put a four-foot wide sidewalk starting at the new driveway going in between the house and the old garage in front of the pool and straight back to the chicken yard. Daddy really hated the mush and gush of the mud during the raining season. I'm going to go let the chickens out and I'll be right back, I said. Mama got up from her chair at the table and went into the kitchen, turning on the right front burner as she passed the stove. I walked through the utility room and out the back garage door. As I walked down the dirt path, Past the swimming pool, the greenhouse, and the garden all on my left, I thought about the day's task ahead. I had helped Daddy set up concrete forms before and knew that today was going to be a long day. As I entered the pasture gate, Daisy, Donald, Daffy, and Mrs. Daffy all met me at the gate, twisting their necks every once in a while so that they could look at me with just one of their eyes. I looked at Donald more closely and discovered that there was a small pile of cow poop at the end of his beak. Sometimes we would supplement the diet for Lady and the cows with Lone Star horse and cattle food that we would get from Mr. Sheffield's feed store, the one that he bought earlier in the year from Mr. and Miss Hayden. The horse and cattle food was a blend of whole oats, chopped yellow corn mixed in with cane molasses. Lady and the cows loved the food, and we would go through a 50-pound bag a week. The ducks discovered a side benefit to the horse and cattle food. The benefit was that some of the oats and some of the corn was not digested by the cows and would wind up in their cow patty that they excreted regularly. When the ducks would discover one of these cow patties, they would sift through it with their beaks, collecting all of the leftover grains. You could always tell when the ducks got a hold of a cow patty because it was flattened to the ground. Man, Donald, I started, you need to wipe off your beak when you do that because it makes you look ridiculous, first of all, and secondly, it's just plain gross. Whack. Donald said as the ducks followed me to the chicken yard. I opened the gate and quickly walked inside, shutting the gate so that the ducks couldn't come in. I then walked over to the chicken house, opened the door, and let everyone out for the day. Next, I checked the chicken feeder and discovered that it was empty. 
I turned, walked out of the chicken yard, and headed straight for the feed room that Daddy had built to store all of the feed that we used for the animals. I bent down and grabbed the 50-pound bag of chicken pellets that was leaning against the wall and slung it over my shoulder. I then squatted down and picked up the 25-pound bag of hen scratch and stood up. I walked back to the chicken yard, opened the gate, and headed to the feeder. The chickens recognized the bag and followed me. I set the bag on the ground and quickly pulled the end of a white piece of string that Lone Star used to weave into the top of the sack to create a seal. I made sure to put the string in my pants pocket because if you left it in the chicken yard, it inevitably would become entwined around a chicken's leg and could eventually cut off the circulation, resulting in the loss of that leg. Occasionally, a piece of string would get loose and Virgil and I would have to chase the chicken down and I would hold their leg out while Virgil would use his pocket knife to cut the string off the chicken's leg. I lifted the 50-pound bag and dumped its entire contents into the chicken feeder. Several hens gathered around and started pecking at the morsels in the feeder. I then opened up the 25-pound bag of hen scratch, which was a blend of milo grain, chopped corn, and oats. This was a treat for the chickens. They loved hen scratch. I formed a bowl by putting both of my hands together and reached into the bag, filling my hands up. I pulled out my handful and cast it into the chicken yard. I repeated this maneuver again, much to the chickens' delight. All the chickens began to busily hunt and peck for the seeds. The sole rooster started scratching the ground and making a clucking noise, alerting the hens that he had found a treasure trove of food and for the f- a treasure trove of food for the flock, even though most of them had already spotted the grain. I grabbed the empty chicken pellet bag, shoved the two pieces of string inside, and then leaned down and grabbed the opened bag of hen scratch. As I headed to the chicken yard gate, I noticed that they needed water. I opened the gate, walked through, and closed it behind me. I then set the bag of hen scratch down on the ground and recupped my hands. I reached inside the bag and grabbed a heaping portion of the hen scratched and tossed it towards the ducks, who started scooping it into their beaks almost immediately. I returned the open bag of hen scratch to the feed room and then went back to the chicken yard where I filled the waterer. The chores were all done, so I headed back to the house, discarding the empty chicken pellet bag into the burning barrel. Go wash your hands, Mama said as I entered the utility room. Make sure that Virgil's awake. I headed back to our room and peeked inside. Virgil was still sound asleep. Virgil, I said irritably, get up. Mama said come to breakfast. Virgil didn't move, so I went to the end of the bed where his head was, grabbed the edge of the top sheet, and yanked it off. "'What'd you do that for?' Virgil said. "'Get up,' I said. "'Mama's making you a pancake. We gotta help Daddy today set the forms for the driveway.' Virgil slowly got out of bed and headed to the bathroom. The two of us helped Daddy build and set the frames for the driveway. We took an hour break for lunch and then another break when Daddy went inside around 3 o'clock to take a nap. Virgil and I grabbed our bicycle and went for a ride around Maywood Acres with a stop at Mr. Pezzle's store. 
we knew that we had about a two-hour time frame to enjoy our freedom. When we returned, we worked with Daddy until about 7 o'clock that evening, finishing the framework for the driveway. On Monday, Daddy began, I want the two of you to hang around the house because I am having several rows of concrete wire delivered to the house. When will it be here? I asked. They said they're going to deliver it around 1 to 2 in the afternoon, Daddy continued. I want the two of you to be available in the evenings because we are going to put, we're going to work on putting the wire in the forms. When are we pouring the concrete? I asked. I have a crew of men coming next Saturday, so we have to be ready, Daddy said. As we entered through the utility room, the aroma of supper was in the air. What are we having supper? For supper, I asked Mama. Meatloaf, cucumbers and vinegar, purple hull peas, and green beans, Mama said. Go wash your hands and get ready. Monday, July 28th. I woke up and headed to do my chores. I noticed that Gina's truck and Daddy's car was gone, which was unusual given the high price of gasoline. I didn't think much of it and continued to the pasture. The rolls of concrete wire were delivered around 1.15, and just like Daddy had instructed me, I had the delivery driver put them in the middle of the driveway, but far enough up so that Gail and Gina could still park their vehicles. Daddy came home around 4 o'clock Monday afternoon, which was much earlier than his, Gina's, and Gail's normal arrival time of 6 o'clock. Instead of taking a nap like he usually did, he changed into some work clothes and we began to lay the wire down in the forms that we had built on Saturday. Gina and Gail arrived around 6 o'clock, like usual. We worked into the evening and finally stopped around 7.30 to eat supper. We repeated the same thing on Tuesday night. Wednesday night was a church night, so there was no work performed on the driveway and sidewalk. After church, the family gathered at the kitchen table to sing happy birthday to Charlotte. Mama had made Charlotte a yellow cake with chocolate icing, and we each had a piece along with two scoops of Blue Bell homemade vanilla ice cream. The work schedule resumed on Thursday, and we finally finished the project Friday evening. Saturday, August 2nd, 1980. Boys, I want you to get up, Mama said as she stood in our doorway. The men that are going to pour the driveway and sidewalk are already here, so I want you to get up, do your chores, eat breakfast, and be ready to help if you're called on. I sat up in bed. I was excited for today because Daddy didn't expect much from me and Virgil because he had hired a team of men to do the concrete work. Virgil, I said, get up. I'm going to go do the chores and I'll meet you for breakfast. Virgil didn't move, so I went and shook him until he was fully awake. Get up, I said. The concrete men are coming today. For some reason, this sense of adventure was enough to motivate Virgil to get up, get dressed, and go and head inside. I quickly dispatched my chores and joined Virgil for a breakfast of fried eggs toast, and bacon. Daddy said the concrete trucks would be here around 8 o'clock, Mama said. 
This is a big day, so stay out of the way of everyone. Virgil and I finished breakfast and headed outside to watch the activity. Daddy was supervising the group of men in the yard, and it was decided that they would pour the sidewalk first and then move on to the driveway. Right at 8 o'clock, the first of several concrete trucks appeared and the work began. It was amazing to see the project that we had started last weekend come to fruition. The men made quick work of the sidewalk and began laying the concrete for the driveway, starting at the concrete driveway in front of the house and moving around to the end of the third driveway. One group of men poured the concrete and another group of men would smooth it into place and then brush the top of it to create a rough surface as the concrete began to set. When can we sign our names into the concrete? I asked Daddy as he headed to the house on a break. You can sign the concrete next to the old garage now, Daddy said. Get one of those 16-penny nails and you can use that to sign your name. Don't forget to put a date next to your name. As Daddy disappeared into the house, Virgil and I ran to the old garage. Because of the fresh sidewalk, we had to leap over the four-foot span to get into the old garage. We each grabbed a nail and jumped back across. Let's sign the sidewalk in front of the pool, I said. Great idea, Virgil said. Each of us took our time and carved our name and the date, 8 2 1980 into the concrete. Everything was finished around four o'clock and the group of men that had been there all day finally left. When can we walk on it? I asked Daddy at dinner that night. You'll be able to walk on it tomorrow morning as you go to do your chores, Daddy said. Everyone was exhausted from the day's events and we went to bed around 10 o'clock. Sunday, August 3rd, arrived, and we went back to our normal routine. I headed out to do my chores, and to my knowledge, I was the first person to use the new sidewalk that led from the driveway all the way to the chicken yard gate. I loved it, and the sidewalk would be very handy during the winter months and early spring when the ground was super wet. I returned to the house and had cereal for breakfast while I read the comics. Typically, we left the house at 9 o'clock to make sure that we were at the church in plenty of time before services started at 9.45. The longest that it ever took us to get to church was 20 minutes one morning, and that was because there was a train that was in the process of dropping off a boxcar at the siding behind the new Perina feed store in town that was ran by the Muirhead family. Most of the time, we were walking in the door of the church building at 9.15. Gina headed to the piano and began picking out songs to play for the service. Virgil and I hung around with Daddy outside and greeted people as they arrived. As was typical at the church, we started right at 9.45 with a hymn, and then we were dismissed to our Sunday school classes, which would last until 10.45. At 11 o'clock, church service would start. After church, it had already been decided by Mom and Daddy to pick up sandwich fixings at the grocery store in downtown Splendora. The events from yesterday had worn both Mama and Daddy out. 
Because of the seven of us no longer fit comfortably into Daddy's car, Gina had, becoming, Gina had begun driving her truck to the church. Gina, Mama began, can you drop by the store with the boys and pick up some lunch meat, bread, and a head of lettuce? Yes, ma'am, Gina said. Daddy and I'll probably take a nap before we eat, so don't wait for us, Mama said. Charlotte and Gail got into Daddy's car along with Mama and Daddy. Gina, Virgil, and I got into her truck and followed the white Buick out of the parking lot across the southbound lanes of Highway 59 and then entering the northbound lanes. Gina's eight-cylinder truck had no problem accelerating as she masked the gas pedal, and before you knew it, we were up to 55 miles per hour. Unlike Gail's Mustang II, which crawled up to 55 miles an hour. As we entered the Splendor city limits, we watched as Daddy's car disappeared down East FM 2090. We turned left into the grocery store, and Gina cut off the engine. Can we get Nutter Butter cookies? I asked. Can we get Fritos and bean dip? Virgil asked. Yes, Gina said. I think we have enough money for everything. As we entered the store, Gina gave directions to me to go get the cookies and Virgil to go get the Fritos and bean dip while she got the lunch meat, bread, and lettuce. Virgil and I stood next to Gina as the cashier rang up our purchases and put everything into a paper bag. As the cashier handed Gina her change, I grabbed the grocery sack and we all headed outside. What are y'all going to do today? Gina said as she started the truck. Go swimming, I said. What are you doing today? I think George and I are going to go to the Sonic in Cleveland, and I was wondering if the two of you wanted to go with us, Gina replied. That would be awesome, Virgil said. Can we get a drink with one of those plastic animals on it? You bet, Gina said. George and Gina regularly went to the Sonic and had been doing so since their high school years. The Sonic in Cleveland would attach a clear one-inch plastic animal to the top of each drink order. There were lions and giraffes, bears and monkeys in differing colors that were given out. George would take these animals and gently push their feet into the edge of the headliner in his truck. After a couple of years, the entire top edge of the cab was lined in animals. George would replace the broken animals with the new animals that he and Gina would get during the week. What time are we going? I asked. Probably around 3.30, Gina said. We have to be back by 5 o'clock so that we can go to church. We arrived at the house and the three of us entered the utility room. Gail and Charlotte had already set the table and true to Mama's word, she and Daddy had gone to take a nap. The five of us ate lunch while we visited, then the girls cleared the table and chewed me and Virgil outside. Looking back, I didn't realize how much Gina, Gail, and Charlotte took care of me and Virgil during our youth. The two of us didn't have to cook or clean because that was always taken care of by the girls. Yes, we did our fair share of chores outside, I will tell you but we didn't have the extra responsibilities of taking care of our siblings. 
Virgil and I explored the new driveway and then swam until 3 o'clock. We both kept an eye on the time because it was a rare occasion that we were ever invited on a sonic trip with Gina and George. We quickly got out of our swimsuits, got dressed, and headed into the house. As we entered the utility room, we both knew that something was wrong. I spotted Daddy first, and he was peering out the window onto the backyard. Gina, Gail, and Charlotte were sitting at the table, and I could tell that they had been crying. Mama was standing near the bar with the green receiver from the wall phone pressed against her ear. Oh, Martha, Mama said, I think my heart is going to break. Have you seen Bubba? Mama listened and then said, I'm going to talk to Jean, and then we'll head up to Mother's house in just a few minutes. Mama hung up the receiver and slowly torn, turned towards the table where we were. What's wrong? I asked. Your cousin Ralph was killed in an accident today, Mama said, and then she started to cry. Daddy got up from the table, grabbed Mama, and held her close while she cried. Ralph was a family favorite. As a matter of fact, Ralph was probably one of the favorites of the entire Patterson clan. I know that he was Granny's favorite grandchild, and he was definitely one of Mama's favorite relatives on her side. How did it happen? I asked. From what we can tell, Gina began, he and his father-in-law were transporting a boat that didn't quite fit on the trailer. So Ralph was riding on the trailer, keeping the boat in place. The boat shifted and killed Ralph as they went around a corner. My heart dropped. Ralph had always been so kind to me and Virgil, never mocking, never saying an unkind word. He was always just good to everyone. Mama collected herself and turned towards me and Virgil. Stay at the house, Mama said in a commanding tone. Don't leave for anything. Jane is going to call Brother Jack and let him know that we won't be at church tonight. Mama, Gina said, is there anything that you need for us to do? Not right now, Mama said, except do you mind staying around the house? No, ma'am, Gina said. Thank you, Mama replied. Can you girls get dinner ready and served later? Yes, ma'am, the girls replied in unison. Daddy and I are going to Granny's and probably won't be home until much later, Mama said. I just can't believe that this is happening. Mama grabbed her purse and then she and Daddy left through the utility room and drove to Granny's house, which is about a fourth of a mile up FM 2090, and set right between Aunt Martha and Uncle Jean's house and Uncle Pat and Aunt Alice's house. I don't remember very much after that. I do remember Daddy, Mama, Gina, Gail, and Charlotte attending Ralph's funeral on Tuesday, August 5th. Gina told me later that our cousin Tim Miles had said to her at the funeral, It's true, only the good die young, and he was a good person. Virgil and I didn't go to either the visitation or the funeral. Again, I think Mama was trying to shield us from the trauma of death. 
When the family came home after the funeral, someone laid Ralph's funeral pamphlet on the bar, so I picked it up and read. Born January 23, 1955, in Michigan. Passed away August 3, 1980, Huntsville, Texas. Age, 25 years, 6 months, 10 days. Services, Brookside Funeral Chapel, Tuesday, 2 o'clock p.m., August 5, 1980. Officiating, Rev. H. J. Boucher. Internment, Brookside Memorial Park. Wife, Darlene Patterson, Splendora. Daughter, Misty Marie Patterson, Splendora. Mother and father, Clara and Ken Touchstone, Houston. Father and stepmother, William and Alice Patterson, Splendora. Three sisters, Glenda, Lanita, and Patty Marie. Four brothers, Wayne Allen, James Ashley, Patrick Earl, and Mark Anthony. Grandparents, Mr. and Miss Bill Rogers of Houston, Miss Catherine Patterson of Splendora, Mrs. Merrill Bender of Houston. As a kid, you learned so much from watching how your parents handle tragedy. There was a pall over the house for the next several days, but that didn't stop Mama from assigning chores. Daddy returned to work on Wednesday, August 6, with instructions that Virgil and I needed to remove the forms from the concrete driveway and sidewalk, extract all of the nails, and stack the lumber neatly into the barn. This project was difficult to do in the middle of a hot August and took me and Virgil the remainder of the week to complete. I know that my parents knew this, but I didn't know at the time how much hard physical labor can help a person work through grief. Looking back, I am so grateful for the wisdom both of my parents had. This concludes Episode 9 of The Approaching Storm by Wallace Gibbs.